Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You are listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a real person sharing their story of loss and the insights they have gained that help them on their journey with grief. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Adriana Prosser, a storyteller, mental health worker, and suicide loss survivor who's going to share her story of losing her brother. Welcome to the Grief Stories podcast, Adriana. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So at the Grief Stories podcast, we sort of invite people to share their stories of loss and how they've moved through the loss into a place of finding some hope and healing. And so I want to begin by inviting you to share your story of loss with us today. All right. That is a loaded question. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it, it all starts once upon a time. <laughs> um, it was uh, November 10th, 2012. And uh, it was a beautiful pea soup outside. Uh, it was an unnormally, wonderfully beautiful, humid night in November in Canada. And, uh, and I was having a party, and I was really mad that the doorbell, like the buzzer to my apartment went off um, after midnight. And I'm thinking, like, are you already begun? These jerk friends didn't want to be here on time. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And it turns out to be my dad. It's my dad in the doorway. And I immediately feel like I'm like five years old and in trouble because <laughs> I'm, I'm having a great old time um, playing video games and being an adult drinking. I don't know. And like I, my, my stomach is in my mouth and I'm like, what are you doing here? I'm so angry and yet shamed and like all of these emotions. And then he says the last thing I ever thought I would hear. He says, your brother has died by suicide. And I blackout. In that blackout, I apparently was screaming like I was being murdered. And the neighbors in the apartment building came over to see if I was okay. And apparently there was this scuffle between uh, my partner at the time who didn't want to come with me with my father because my dad was like, please come with me. Your family needs you. And, and I was just this sobbing mess. And all of a sudden, I found myself at my father's home, at my family home, and didn't really know how I got there. And that night, I've nicknamed that night the day that I lost everything, everything but my cat, because there was this blow-up where I lost my brother, the dynamic, the family dynamic, and the, the timeline that I thought I was in and catapulted into grief and bereavement. But then I also had complicated grief that, and compounded grief where my partner left that night. And in doing so, I lost my apartment. I lost my way of life. So I lost a lot. And for me, it was really important that I keep my cat. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are things that you just latch onto in grief. And when you feel this, like the, the, the floor comes from out from underneath you, and you just need something solid. And so I was catapulted into uh, complicated grief and almost lost my job, 
because of the weight of the grief and not being able to metabolize it well, because it was such a sudden, uh, um, like it was a shock. There are different types of grief and bereavement, especially if it's something where it's a, a long-term illness and there's there's some forethought to that loss and perhaps that you can understand what's happening around you in, in a long form um, over time. But this sudden impact, this, this nuclear blast, which I have called it, really disrupted everything and yes. annihilated my way of life. So that is that that was the initial understanding and and um, and impact of how my brother's suicide affected my life, and it essentially changed who I was because of all these different types of losses in a very short amount of time. Yeah, this sudden, shocking, traumatic experience of losing your brother mm-hmm. and losing almost everything else including almost your job and everything but the cat. It changed everything in your life. It was upended in in that moment that answering the door, right? Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was like opening a new door into a different portal. Like I love time uh, time travel things, like Back to the Future is one of my very favorite things. And I, and I think about, I had to think about these things in a framework that would make sense to my brain and like looking for comfort and things that would make sense. And to me, it was just like, this is the darkest timeline. This is Biff getting the almanac in Back to the Future 2 <laughs> and just ruining my life. And yeah. and I did. I felt like my life was ruined. And yeah. the first year of bereavement was me constantly feeling like I was drowning on dry land. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the challenges of such a sudden and traumatic loss as suicide is that you didn't have any chance to anticipate it or prepare for it or to do anything. And it's really, really hard to adjust to this reality, isn't it? That's one of the big challenges that you faced was trying to figure out what's real. How is this real? How do I go on? What's left? And so, so many challenges, both just in terms of relationships and also functioning. I sometimes talk about the idea that the landscapes of our relationships change in grief and the disruption or the breakup of your your partnership is one of those big landscape mm-hmm. terraforming changes, right? You know? Mm-hmm. And uh, but I think I suspect that you probably had a lot of other relationship changes as a real result, in part because you said you changed yourself, right? Everything is different for you now. Yeah, my your perspective shifts through trauma. And like you were saying, like terraforming, like it was like a whole new world was before me. You know, like my back to futurism. So it's like there's this is a new timeline. I thought I was on this timeline, but now I'm on this one. And that grief, that, that grieving your way of life was a really big eye-opener um, and really because I wanted to close my eyes to these things. Like the first year of bereavement was really me just not being able to adapt, to accept this new reality, uh, and to metabolize my grief that the process of, of, you know, crying and having angry fits and panic attacks and pushing people away and... <laughs> You know, it was, I became a nuclear blast. That grief was just, it was housed in me and it didn't really 
have a lot of validation around me that told me that grief doesn't move in five stages. Grief mm. is not pretty. Grief is different for everyone. And that's not to say that I didn't have fantastic people around me. There were people who got blasted out by the impact, right? That they just, they vanished. My mother would say things like, you meet people for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. Really learned my lifetime people through this because a lot of seasonal people dropped off who I thought were really bosom buddies and they turned out not to be. And that's no shame. That's, that's no, that's, you know, there's no judgment there. It's just, you know, there are people in your life that are reason, season, and lifetime. And the people who did take the impact and roll with it, I am so grateful for. And it has been 10 years since my brother's death. And the 10-year death anniversary for me was really important for me to reach out to those people who took the impact in stride and stood by me as best they could, even though they didn't have the words that I now, uh, as a mental health advocate, as a suicide prevention trainer, as a hospice uh, companion worker, that I, I had these words after 10 years of learning to say things like, I see you, I hear you, and I want to validate you, and grief is messy, and there's no five stages, like all of that, they just were with me. And that was an amazing gift and something that I have learned through the years is better than any advice, any kind of help or fixing. It's just to be there, to companion somebody through their grief and through their trauma and just say, hey, I'm here. It's okay. That in itself was amazing so that I didn't feel alone all the time. Because even in a crowded room with grief, you can feel so isolated at an island and so alone um, because you're so raw, you know, especially in those first few years. You're so raw by how much you've lost that you can't see what you still have. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you really highlight some of the parts that I often find myself talking with people about. And one of them is the fact that there are people who simply cannot be present with your grief because it's somehow too painful to them or, or they just are not knowing. So, and there are two yeah. different ways of not being able to show up, right? Sometimes it's, it's being afraid to be with you in that grief because of their own fears. And other times mm -hmm. it's an, it's an unknowing and, uh, and not recognizing, not realizing the depth of it and the need for somebody to show up. And so then you have the people who were able to be present and just to be present is a gift in itself when you're grieving, isn't it? You said that very well, oh, right? Amazing. Just, yeah, just showing up and being present, being able to be there because suicide loss is so riddled with stigma and fear that people have such a hard time just showing up and being present in the face of it. People who can do that are real gifts in the life of someone who has lost someone to suicide, right? Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's just, I would love to speak more about the showing up and being there for someone because I think uh, people hear that. I know I, when I heard, like, show up, show up for, for yourself and for your friends, and that it's just like, okay, well, uh, what am I doing? What, what are you asking me to do? Like, I want to do something to help. I want to do, do, do. And that's not it. Like, the people who really helped me, we're not doing anything extravagant. 
or really <laughs> that significant. Like they were helping me make like go to the grocery store. They would do the errand errand hang, which is a, a very looked over friendship dynamic where these people were making sure I was I was eating properly, right? Yeah. And that not just wallowing in my grief at home and eating another tablespoon of peanut butter, which I did. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, some people being like, hey, do you want to go for a coffee? And, you know, they steered me towards the grocery store and I came out with a bag of groceries, you know, like things like that. And showing up can also just be, hey, I, uh, I'm, I've got, I'm in your area, you know, make it up. You can lie, please. It's fine. I'm in your area. I'd love to watch some Doctor Who with you and just sit beside me. Like, it's not, not me asking you to be my therapist it's not me asking you to just sit there and watch me cry at you which may happen but you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. It, it's just being present with like that that in itself is, is the gift right your presence is present yeah as easy as that and I also hear in that just people who are not afraid if you are unmotivated to do much more than get some peanut butter on a spoon for the time being, and they're not afraid for you to cry your face off at them, they can just accept where you are in whatever place you are. You're right. I know you know that the stages of grief are kind of not related to what a real experience of grief is at all. No, grief grief for the bereaved is not linear it doesn't happen in order. It doesn't happen in a time frame that you can put a, a numbers on or anything. And so people who can be present with that uncertainty and that, you know, fluctuation of emotion are the people that really are the gifts in grief, right? Yeah. So amazing. And you said it too, that I'd love to highlight something that was a big epiphany for me in my grief journey was meeting people where they're at. and and just being with them at that point because they haven't had that realization yet. They haven't metabolized their grief to the point where they can start moving away from, you know, maybe um, reliving it and rehashing it. Like for me, I stayed really heavily in the guilt and this guilt mind frame because it was a suicidal death. And I kept saying over and over again, the last time I saw him, what could have I done? The could have, should have, would have. It was a very big, something that was always really weighing on my heart and something that will probably always weigh on my heart. I, I, I just have to learn to walk with it. It's the idea that he was two subway stops away from me. And I went through years of resentment, being angry at my brother to be like, you walk your ass over here. You come to me or you call me when you're feeling this low. Mm-hmm. And I got very angry at him for not allowing me in. And releasing that that guilt has been a, a very long journey and I think that that's going to be a lifelong journey for me especially people who are dealing with with suicidal deaths of the coulda shoulda woulda it's a record that we will always have playing in the background uh-huh. um but that again you know the gift of my friends not not trying to help me through it and trying to advise me through it but just saying wow that's so heavy that's so much that's so sad just witnessing that with me and validating the fact that I am going through hell (laughs) and and it's nice to know that there's somebody who's willing to hold my hand or just sit with me in my swamp like that idea of like meeting people where they're at like 
there were days that I didn't shower for like a week or two because I just couldn't get myself up out of bed. I was just so depressed. I was so annihilated by this knowledge that my brother was dead and I'd never see him again. Yeah, really heavy. Like it immobilizes you because of the sudden shock of it and the weight of it and the, the, the terrible tragedy of it. And the people who can just be present with that and not try and hurry you through or make it better because there is no making that better, right? Mm -hmm. There is only learning to live with. This is the story I have now. Right. Yeah. And, and, and with the story aspect that it, you start to feel like you're going insane because you just keep talking about it. But I've actually, like, again, hospice training um, has been really eye-opening to me to find the words for the things that I experience, that there are different ways to metabolize the grief. Um, and I really, really love being here human. Uh, they're a local resource, and they gave me grief literacy training. You can take it, too, that there are different types of ways to metabolize your grief, to, like, make it real, like that, to actually house it in your body, to accept it, which is, again very different from the five stages of grief, um, that there's storytelling, community, movement, sound, and oh my goodness, I can't remember the fifth one, so I'll have to find it for you, but that I chose to storytell. And in hospice training, 10 years later, I'm finding out that there are studies that people need to tell their grief story, need to say this person has died and this is how I feel about it at least 100 times before it becomes a reality for them. So I felt like I was the broken record trying to tell everyone like, oh my God, like this is, but you, you don't understand Like my brother is dead. I don't know how to live right now. And I felt really dumb that that was all I could talk about. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it was because I was trying to make sense of my new reality. Yeah. And without having somebody to talk to, like, again, that gift of meeting people where they're at. And and if you're listening right now and you're like, oh, I know somebody who, who has experienced the death and all they want to talk about is the dead person or they feel really shamed talking about the, de the dead person, a, a huge gift that you can give to them is just say, I'd love to hear a story about them or, you know, how, how are you doing? And please tell me the good, the bad, the ugly, because it really helps the person who's grieving metabolize and understand that oh my goodness this is my new reality yeah uh, and I think you know that word metabolize another word that I sometimes use is integrate and the way that I talk about that is that it's like when the death happened you got handed this package and this package is it's really ugly it's it's you don't want to even look at it but it's yours now and you can't mm. put it down and so at the beginning you hold it out from you. It's all you can concentrate on and it's all you can see as you try and hold it far away from you. And then over time, your arms get tired of holding it all that far out. So you have to kind of bring it closer to you. And it's still ugly, but you know what? Actually, it's yours and you're starting to get used to it. There's that tear again. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Oh, and the drippy mess in the corner of it. Yeah. And so as you get used to it, it becomes familiar it doesn't feel as sharp and ugly as it did when you first got handed it and you were mm -hmm. trying to keep it away as you bring it closer to you too, 
you begin to see other things around it. You can start to see the landscape again around you. And, you know, eventually maybe you can carry this package under one arm and do other things with your free hand, you know, Mm. and then, and then eventually maybe you can put that package in a backpack so that you know that it's always with you. That ugly package is going to stay ugly. It's, it's not going to change any, but you don't have it in front of you all the time. It's always there. Sometimes the backpack spills open and there it is again, and you weren't expecting it. And you get a little bit of that shock again, and then you have to kind of adjust and rearrange it. And other times you open the backpack and you go, oh yeah, there it's still there. There it is. I remember that rip, mm. right? And so you have this thing that you now carry becomes a part of your whole life and not the only thing that you can see or face. And I think that when you use the word metabolize, that's the analogy that I think of is how do we move it us as part of us, our familiar piece of our story, but not the only part of our story we can attend to. 100%. And I love that that idea of carrying it with you, because I think the other myth of the five stages of grief is that you move through these timed milestone responses, and then it's done. And it's like as if you don't miss that person or are sad for that person being gone ever again it's really something you carry with you for the rest of your life it is that integration Mm -hmm. I think closure is a term that gets thrown around a lot and what people are actually looking for is metabolism or integration right because we we don't actually get to close that it's ours now yeah and so the the language of metabolism or integration I also use the word adaptation, like we we adjust, we adapt to this as our new reality. Um, the next reality is another phrase I sometimes hear. And, and I think that's such a healthier way of looking at it because it acknowledges what is instead of trying to push it away. Yeah, 100%. And I did not have those voices around me. I've had uh, friends and family members ridicule me for still grieving. People in your life don't want to see you in pain. They want you to have closure. They like this idea that it can be wrapped up and done. And Mm -hmm. um, the reality of our stories is that that's just not true because this is now part of your lifelong story. And one of the ways that I think that you worked through some of your grief and found some healing was in telling your story, mentioned that idea of telling your story. Did you find that cathartic? Did you find telling your story a part of your healing process? 100%. My very favorite way to grieve is storytelling. And that actually led to me bringing my story, my first year diary entries, because I don't really remember living my first year of bereavement, but I certainly wrote things down because I did feel really like an island and I didn't really have somebody to talk to all the time because my partner did leave me and I was living with with a friend who took me in, another wonderful person who met me where I was at, um, but that, you know, he was gone all the time. Like, he's he's not my partner, he's a roommate and I didn't really have anywhere, anyone in, the, in my vicinity to talk to 24-7 like I was used to um, and my family was grieving and uh, it was just, yeah, it was, it was a way for me to metabolize, like to write in my diary and journal. And then 
I, as I started to come out of the first year of bereavement and started to function a little bit more as a human, meaning like I was taking showers regularly, I was eating food that was healthy and regular and like just basic, basic functioning. Some people started to ask if, you know, like, do you want to go for a cup of coffee? And, and I would tell my story. And uh, my one friend, Brittany, she turned to me and she's just like, Adrienne, this is a fringe show. Like, this is a theater show. You need to do this. And I'm like, no, nobody wants to hear my sob story. And she's like, yeah, I did. And it was fascinating for me to work through that as a one-woman show. Uh, it's called Everything But the Cat, again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I lost everything but my cat. And it's a 45-minute one-woman show, but there's voiceovers. I, I felt the need to include other perspectives told through my lens. I never, ever, ever, ever say that this is the truth. This is the truth according to me. Um, and it's my first year of bereavement diary entries with uh, shadow puppets because, again, things are such a blur that I, didn't, I don't remember things in Technicolor. So there are, are shadow people represented and voiceovers and me telling you the story like I did to several people who were like, hey, we'd, I'd love to see you. Come on, let's go out. And I would tell them the story from beginning to end, which was about an hour. <laughs> and that really helped me. Uh, it did give me catharsis. It did give me a means of metabolizing. Because again, I'm telling that story over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And also, I think for me, knowing that there were audience members because I did it, I put it up. Mm-hmm. Um, it did um, the solo festival. It did uh, the alumni theater. Uh, they did an incubator program with it. I then took it on tour to high schools and universities. And then I archived it at the 10 year death anniversary mark online for anybody to watch. And it feels like I might not be doing it hundreds of times, but that there, there were hundreds of people in the audience that felt like I was telling it that many times. Uh, so to me, that was very beneficial for my modality, my my way of grieving. Now, to somebody else, that might sound like hell in a handbasket. That <laughs> that's just like the, the worst way to grieve. Like, I don't want to tell anybody, anybody, you know, yeah. there's intuitive grievers and instrumental grievers and stuff. But for me, oh, my goodness, what a gift to be yeah. witnessed and then. For me as well, it really catapulted me into doing mental health advocacy and suicide prevention workshops because after the show, I would get direct messages, private messages on my social media, or people were brave enough and, you know, so amazing for them to come up to me in person after the show and have a little chat with me that they that they felt seen, that it resonated with them, that they had a piece of them released in relief to be like, Oh my goodness, me too. And that, that was a big part of my healing journey too, was me being able to tell my story the way that I wanted to, which is such a privilege and for it to then be reflected back in, wow, you've really helped me like that. For me, I'm, I'm a big sister and big sisterisms like that, where like I connect people or, or help them have a resonant moment really really makes me happy like it really fulfills me as a person <laughs> yeah so it's same it seems to me like your story re- really echoes some of the things that that I have experienced about grieving with people as well and and one of them is that the first year can really be turbulent and we mm-hmm. spend a lot of the time after a sudden traumatic death in 
in shock and we don't really absorb things. And what a powerful tool therapeutic writing was for you, journal writing was for you to capture some of those things that you otherwise don't remember because of that space that your brain was in and in response Mm -hmm. to the shock of losing your brother. And then to take that diary, to take that year and some of those experiences and to make them into this show that you did, this really powerful, moving, touching show, you know, it feels to me like that was very much a part of your metabolizing. But I also Mm -hmm. know that there's so much power in sharing our stories. Sharing our stories Mm -hmm. lets us know that we are not alone because you get that connection and validation from people when you share your story. But it also lets all those people in your audiences know that they're not alone either. Exactly. And so there's this synergy of healing that happens when we share Mm. stories in a way that when we keep to ourselves, it doesn't, it just doesn't open up that possibility. And I, I totally want to acknowledge you're absolutely right that there are different ways that people grieve and that not everybody wants to make a one woman show out of their (laughs) grief story. And that's okay. (laughs) My family members pointed out, they were like, why would you do this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And yet, wow, look at what it brought into your life in terms of healing and moving through this process, right? You know, you telling your story in that way was you getting used to the ugly package, making it yours, right? Holding it and hugging it and making it mine for sure. It's, it's, again, the things that you, again, because I did this, this show, I, I got a lot of that, why would you do this? Nobody needs to hear this. Like I did get the other stuff. I did get a lot of judgment because I think we were talking about earlier that some people might not be able to be there for you because they're not there in their journey yet, which is, I don't know, kind of like a hallmark kind of cutesy way of putting it, but that they themselves haven't looked at their own shadow, their own trauma, and it's being mirrored or reflected back to them at a point where they cannot deal with it. They're not ready to deal with it. They don't have the tools and the resources to deal with it. So they are running in fear and or that they get angry at you because you're doing things that they themselves haven't been able to yet. And that's something that's happening at a subconscious level, like that they themselves don't know by lashing out at you. Like they're thinking, oh, you're, this is wrong. This is uncouth. How dare you air dirty laundry? Look at what you're doing to your family. You're shaming them. And like, it's like, no, I'm not. No, yeah. I'm not. But that brings us back to the whole heart of the issue of sig- stigma around suicide loss and the yes. fact that people are so afraid to talk about it that people are literally dying instead of talking yes. about it. Yeah. So how do we make it okay to share those stories in a way that is safer and mm-hmm. allows connection and allows people to be where they need to be and mm-hmm. instead of running in fear and shame, right? Yeah, and it's, it's that thing um, in my show, I talk about the mourning disease where people are afraid of talking about death, not just suicide, but death mm-hmm. because it is, it is the great unknown. It's something that is unquantifiable. We don't really know what happens after we die. Like all of these like big esoteric and like, ridiculous things but also just the fear of dying like there's just a lot of stuff that you have to confront about your own fears and things that we you know that during the day-to-day we we don't really think about how or when we're going to die and that's completely reasonable but 
But when somebody is confronted with a death, when somebody is confronted with a loss, then you too have to confront it because you're in their you're in their community, you're in their circle, and that could be that could be very jarring and scary for you too. This disenfranchised grief, right? These mm-hmm. terms that I'm just learning, where it's like, I didn't know Adri's brother, but I am grieving for this loss. What is wrong with me? Like, why am I getting teary? Why am I getting angry? Why am I getting fearful? And so, I think like what you were saying is that. To make these these conversations less heated or, you know, a little bit more accessible and how do we get to the point where we can talk about these, I think that's just it, is failing forward. We just have to talk about them, period. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to have all of the right words. I certainly still don't. I'm just learning all these fancy things. You might be thinking, oh, well, you, you're using things like disenfranchised grief, blah, blah, blah. But it's just, you... You can't know until you know, failing forward and not knowing what the words are and being like, you know that feeling when? And it's like, yeah, 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 there's a word for that. Oh, cool. Like yeah. learning and failing forward is such a thing that I don't think that we really embrace, um, yep. that we want, we want to be perfect. We want to get it right. We want to feel good. And we want to be comfortable. And talking about grief is not comfortable. Being with grief yeah. and loss is is a place of discomfort. And so being whole, being human, is being okay being with the uncomfortable stuff when we need to be with it because it's part of life too. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And storytelling is a way, right? It's one of the ways that we can do that. I mean, there are a lot there are other ways. We know that we can we can do that in song. We can do that in in physical presence and, and movement, there are lots of ways we can do it, but storytelling is, is a really powerful way of it, of connecting for ourselves and for others around us as well. So yeah, it's, it's, um, you have had quite a, a journey with your grief, with your, your experience and, and you've really done some powerful work with it that is, I'm sure touching the hearts and lives of many others and sharing sharing your experience opens that pathway for others. And that's really reflective of what we, what we try to do at grief stories too, is, is, is allow people to share their stories in a way that offers possibility for healing for others too. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you for joining us today. (laughs) Thank you for letting me share my story. This is, this is a really wonderful, really wonderful gift to, to hear from your other guests. and and be able to add my voice. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we know that this story might be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org for more stories of hope and healing.